For every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. But I understand why people have terrible drug problems and alcohol problems because a lot of the entertainment industry is finding out it's nothing like you thought it would be. I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. I still felt the enormous pressure from the label or the whatever expectations, but I didn't worry about that too much, luckily. I, I didn't really let that in. I was terribly uh, ambitious, really, both in terms of getting on top of the pops, but also in terms of getting my vision to come true. I spent 10 years of my life with no money. Trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. But at that time, I remember coming over here and it was the only thing I could see was miles and miles of Oasis posters. And we didn't really have that vibe at all. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent and 10% timing. I think the idea is to remain yourself but stay open to being influenced. Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to, altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it, and turning it into um, you know, a kind of higher art form. Hello, and welcome to The Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Joplin. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music. Insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the renowned British premium audio brand. Interpol is an American rock band from Manhattan, New York, formed in 1997. They're a trio now, consisting of Paul Banks on lead vocals and bass, Daniel Kessler, who joins me for the conversation on lead guitar and backing vocals, and Sam Fogarino on drums. They've released seven studio albums, the first of which, Turn On The Bright Lights, is celebrating its 20th anniversary in 2022. It was a slow burn success that sold over half a million copies in the US, and they got quite big. They've been badged as art rock or gloom rock, and compared with Joy Division and sometimes the band Television. But to my ears, I hear more early R.E.M. and even earlier Blondie. There's something there about an American interpretation of post-punk British pop music, and Interpol do that very well. Their sound is very balanced between all the usual rock elements, Paul Banks' moody vocals, Daniel Kessler's looping guitar riffs, Throbbing bass lines and drum patterns. Actually, Dan Fogarino is a bit of a secret weapon in the band, if you listen closely. I became a fan through a listening experiment. 
I didn't get on too well with their debut, and I tried listening to the follow-up antics on heavy rotation, and it, it suddenly clicked. And I came to understand the songs kind of began to separate, because they do make songs that are of a similar tempo, essentially. But it takes a while, and the tunes do get into your head. They create a mood, kind of music with distinctive colors. If you reflect that on the band's image, it's black, red, white, and gray. We talk about all these things with Daniel Kessler in episode three of season five with Interpol. Daniel Kessler from Interpol, how are you? And welcome to the Out of Longevity, Daniel. Thanks for having me. And whereabouts in the world are you at the minute? I'm in Spain at the moment. Okay. Okay, great. What, are you just taking a break? Because you're not touring right now, are you? I think you're going back on the road shortly. We are. We're going back out in about 10 days. So yeah, just around the States and looking forward to that. Well, congratulations. The other side of Make Believe been out for a little while now. What's the reaction that you felt to the new album? I don't know. You know, to me, it's like I'm not the greatest uh, barometer as far as reactions. I mean, and this is something, this is nothing new. I just don't put my foot in the water, so to speak, and try to see how people are feeling. It's always nice to hear when people are feeling it, you know, when friends say something to you or someone in just in general. And so, um, so far people have been saying nice things to me, but I'm not definitely, you know, I've never been someone like scours for reviews or scours for feedback and social media and stuff like this. It's something I've been doing really since turn on the bright lights days. And it was not because I was reading anything bad around then. It just, I was sensing that the, the change and just the anticipation of like when, you know, just being curious about what was out there, like in the early days, I think bright lights, and it was always, you know, predominantly positive. But I just didn't like. I was noticing the way I was changing by just being like a little bit nervous beforehand or the anticipation, and I just kind of was like, wait for self preservation. Nothing should change, whether it's good or bad. And I should just keep doing what I want to be doing. You know what I'm doing, which is what's important to me, and that's what I've been doing since then. And it's just kind of like just puts these like little blinders on my you know, my eyes and just lets me going forward and keeps on writing and so forth. So to me, it's just like, I guess self-preservation, but ultimately it's also sort of when you do the the long division on things, that's what's important. Like I can't control how people react. As I said, it's always nice when people say positive things, but I totally respect that not everyone will love something that you do. And that's fair game. As long as I'm and we are good with what we put out there, then that's all I can control, you know? Yeah, I guess your records are a little bit slow burn anyway, I find. Like it takes a while for any one record that you've released to bed in. So I can't quite place it yet into Uber. So I'm, I'm not going to ask you to try and do that. But you don't look at the numbers then. You don't kind of look at the streaming numbers now and say, hey, how are we doing? I don't. I don't look at it. I mean, it's, um, you know, I used to work in the music industry. I used to work at record labels and things like that. And um, I mean, obviously the the music industry has changed about about a billion times you know, over since then, it just keeps changing and evolving. And it's like insane. So no, it's not something, it's not a science that I want to, you know, it's either, I feel like you're, it's either you're going to be all in on this as far as like wanting to know everything and all the data, or you're going to be like, this is just so out of my hands. And I don't, you know, like, I don't, I don't think my mood should change one way or the other. I feel very good about the record. Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, sincerely from the bottom of my heart, I know we wouldn't put anything out there that we don't feel is as good as anything we've done previously. And I really do feel like it holds its own. And I think it's a very strong record and I love it and we love it. I'm really proud of it. And so like, that's all I can do. I've said that makes it actually, I'd, I'd feel a lot more insecure if you we were putting something else, something out there that 
you know, I had some uncertainty about because then I'd feel like if someone didn't like it, they actually were tapping into my insecurity about something that, you know what I mean? But like, if I feel good about it and someone else doesn't like it, but I feel good about it, like I can respect that someone else might prefer something else with them previously. That's totally fair game. So no, I don't, I don't follow the numbers, any of that stuff, you know? Yeah. It's kind of reassuring to hear in a way, especially with your, you know, record industry background, because I, I guess creators shouldn't, but I know a lot of creators that do. <laughs> obsess over the numbers so no, i was just interested i do read the reviews i don't know why i've been kind of addicted to reading reviews just out of interest i think i just enjoy reading what writers how writers express a record and you know my go-to is alexi petridis the guardian now he said of the other side of make-believe that i'll quote here interpol are long past the point where they're in the business of attracting new fans nevertheless they keep moving albeit subtly do you think that's fair? Keep moving, like keep being a band? Is that like, I mean, is that the implication or? I think what he's saying is the changes are subtle. And I kind of agree with that. You know, it's, I, I first got into Interpol actually as a bit of a listening experiment because I didn't really take to turn on the bright lights. And we'll talk about that in a second. What I read was was amazing. So I checked it out. I listened to Antics on heavy rotation. and that started to make sense and i think that's the thing it's uh, it, your music takes time to bed in and the songs take a lot of time to separate and it definitely takes some time to distinguish between the records but it's there do you feel like your change from album to album is subtle or do you know that you're going for a different direction a different sound i feel like this is more of a case when you're like in the forest you just you know you it's hard for you to have the true perspective on how much you're evolving or changing and so forth it was a surprise when we finished this record. It was a surprise, like the, you know, when our our management heard it and our record label heard it, even coming into the studio and hearing where we were like, and they were very enthusiastic. They were really excited, like, oh, that sounds really, really different from stuff they did on previously. That was a surprise to me. I was like, oh, really? I, I didn't think it sounded the same. And I knew there was elements that were different, such as like Tony and something changed, which have piano and i'm not playing guitar on those songs and and i and I, I know there's some other songs that just showed an evolution and a progression like into the night and and so forth but um i was surprised by myself you know i was like i you know that they would have said that on this record maybe more than the the previous record so but that's where i recognize it's like you're just not i'm just not objective as long as i feel good about what we're doing like i said that's the only thing and i do trust my sixth sense as far as when i'm writing it where I know it's the same thing like when I'm writing, like working on a new piece of music just on my own before the bands, you know, taps into it. It's the same, the same sort of engagement has to happen that's been happening with me since I was a teenager, which is just sort of like this euphoric excitement has to happen where I'm like, oh, this thing. And it, it can't happen very often. I can't get this every day. I'm not a prolific person who's just writing 14 songs, it's, but I go fishing all, you know, every day and I try to figure something out. And that's is part of the process. But when I do, it's it's the same sort of emotion and excitement where the world just got a little bit more even keel. Everything's a little more balanced. Like you're, I'm like a little nicer to everyone in the world. Everything's, you know, a little bit rounder. And that's something that I see. So to me, it's like, and it's like almost like an addictive quality to have that. So I had those when I was writing these songs and we certainly had those when these songs were coming together and we're pre put, you know, forming them into Interpol pieces of music. So those are things as long as like, and I'm very grateful for those moments. And I'm also kind of in awe that we still have those moments where they remind me again, it, it takes me back to the early days of Interpol when you like leave a rehearsal and you're, you know, you're, you're 
bullient about something that happened like oh my god i can't believe that song took this turn i would never seen that coming but and we had those and so to me i'm like oh those feelings are you know i i know i recognize that those are those those uh emotional that, that that excitement that happiness that euphoria again which is just something amazing for any human to experience but when you put it in the the like the the paradigm of the band you know the band's life it's like i i, I recognize those high moments and so i know that we're on the right course so um uh i'm not sure if i answered anything there but, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> no it, it is interesting especially hearing that you're writing in those euphoric moments and feeling the excitement about the music and i guess maybe one of the things about this band is over 25 years obviously you're all 25 years older and you were kind of known for but also badged as kind of angsty and art rocky and deep and dark and moody at the beginning but you're not going to necessarily be in that place 25 years older and down the line <laughs> i think it's like this is kind of like you know it's in that when you put it into the grand umbrella of art you know it's like the, these moments of what i'm talking about euphoria or feeling a bit better this is emo you know this is expression this is things that make me feel better right when i come you know when i write a piece of music it makes me feel better i'm like expressing something i'm excited you know and i think that's just kind of probably you put that over the centuries that's how artists would probably you know i would imagine when like a picasso you know tapped in something new or got excited about something that's it you know this is not so much because he was feeling heavy and so forth as much as these are the modes that sort of help us through our, our existence a little bit. And so I think this is something that's linear, that's probably not going to go away. That said, I'm very grateful that, you know, you get older and these things can go away. The fact that I can still rank them into, you know, recognizing these moments of, you know, euphoria or excitement or the band's progress and so forth, that we still have this and that we're still amongst us while writing pieces of music is definitely not something to be taken for granted. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have this anymore. Like we would, we're not, we didn't make a record because it was time to go make a record. We made a record because I'd written a batch of songs. I shared it with my bandmates. They got, they, they respond to them. They worked on them. They, you know, and then the songs were already on the course. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're just thinking about what you're doing and you're really excited about it. You, you do feel there's this sense of like, oh man, this is as good as ever, better than anything we've ever done previously, which I think that's what you should feel as an artist, you know? So, but those things, you can't take those things for granted because it'd be, it's quite reasonable that one day, 25 years after you started the band, you would no longer feel this way. And if it really became like a job, like, well, I guess we want to go touring, so we should make a wreck, we would stop. We wouldn't, I know we wouldn't do this just, and I know there's plenty of bands that, that that's just what happens. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I know that, we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to go through this process just the kind of individuals that we are. It just it would be it'd be difficult to be trying, and it would be for the first time. I would, it would feel like a job, and that's we can't you know that just wouldn't work for us. It just wouldn't work, and it'd be it'd be a weird kind of it'd be like effort coming from a wrongful place. Yeah, the industry is meant to be a fun industry. It's entertainment at the end of the day. Let's not get too. Yeah, you want to do this. You should want to do this. Not have to do this. It's a shame to do something that you were, you know, as a teenager you dreamt of doing, and then you have this, and then you work so hard to have the opportunity to make a record, you know, which didn't come easy for us and took a long time. And then when you, you know, you do, and then, he, and then you never really dreamt before beyond making that record. Then here we are, twenty five years after the fact, and twenty years after our first record came out, having this conversation. That's like wild to me but it's also extremely privileged to still feel like yeah i love our last record i really do and i do feel like it's as good as anything we've done and i hope i feel that way about our next record because then that means that like i'm you know i'm still in it to win it and i i love what i do and i you know and i still have this 
this deep need. And I do feel like my bandmates have that too as well. And I, you know, I see them improving as artists as well, which is pretty, like I see Paul just evolving all the time as a, as an artist, just always going forward and progressing. It's really remarkable. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers and Wilkins, the premium British audio brand. Bowers and Wilkins loudspeakers are trusted by some of the world's leading recording studios, including Abbey Road. It's a pleasure to have Bowers and Wilkins supporting the show. I recently saw you at the Roundhouse in London. You've been touring a lot. You know, when you tour, you are a pretty hardcore touring band. Are you making up for lost time to some extent with the touring right now? No, I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, I mean, just it's strange with the pandemic and everything. It didn't, it didn't interrupt our schedule so much. We average, you know, putting out a record every three and a half, four years. And we're right on, that's just, you know, that this latest record came out about the same amount of time. So it didn't, it didn't affect us on that. And so we're not really making up for, for, but you know, for lost time. But um, as, as you said, we, when we, when we put out a record, we normally try to, really support it and get out there and play as, you know, to as many people as, as, uh, as possible. I wanted to ask you about this tour you did last year with Spoon. We're about to do it. We haven't, not last year, we're about to do it uh, in a couple of weeks. Is that the tour coming up with Spoon? I thought that had already happened. No, no, no. That starts in about, yeah, like two weeks. I guess I need to look closer at the dates because I'm looking at this, um, at the schedule thinking, I'm just feeling envious that, um, all of these US fans are getting two of the coolest bands on earth touring together. And I, I mean, I can't go because I'm stuck here in the UK. But I, okay, so that's about to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, a US and um, one date, or yeah, I think just one date in Canada. Okay. The lights, camera, faction. Whose idea was that? Well, I mean, we've known those guys for forever since Time of Bright Lights days. I mean, they had a record. Um, come out around i think the same month i don't know if it was the same day but the same month as that record called kill the moonlight which is a tremendous album we all loved it when it came out and and then consequently we've you know we got to meet those guys because you put out a record on the same you know around the same time you're going to find yourselves a similar you know festival stops and and we're already fans of them and then we just became friends and then i've been friends with brit the the singing guitarist since that time and uh and then we did one tour with them in uh, on Antics, actually. Um, they supported us in, in Europe. And so that was really fun. And um, and then, yeah, and now we're on the same, you know, we're on both on Matador and it just felt like a, a great thing to do and it just made a lot of sense. And, you know, it's rare that you get to tour with your longtime friends, but it's uh, definitely makes it, you know, a lot, you know, not a lot more fun, but it makes it more fun for sure. You don't see it very often. It's kind of, I guess, you know, essentially joint billing, as I said, two really cool bands with two followings. I would imagine the overlap in the fan base is pretty big as well. So, you know, it, it's kind of a treat uh, then post-pandemic to be able to go, hey, I've still got a chance to come. I'll just hop on a flight. Yeah, you too, man. Come on, man. Get on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look into that. Okay, Daniel, the conversation is meant to follow. It very rarely does, but it's meant to follow a kind of narrative arc, which is now being referred to on, on the show and people around it as Brett's Curve, because it was based on a, a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that, you know, Band's career trajectory follows a certain narrative, which is the struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom or the backlash, <laughs> and then the renaissance. How much of that do you kind of 
recognized in the 25 years of Interpol? Well, the struggle for sure at the beginning, um, just because, you know, we, we were banned for five years and, and not getting anywhere, really. And I mean, for the first four years, three and a half years, we're just really um, we started played our first show in early 98, like March 98, put out our first demo in the summer 98. And we were already kind of we had our identity, you know, in the first demo, we had PDA and Roland that would end up on Turn on the Bright Lights, those not those recordings of it but the songs hadn't really changed um but the timing maybe just wasn't right you know we we you know and then on the second then we recorded pda and then we had um i can't remember what other songs we added to it but consequently we just couldn't find a home every record label in the world just rejected us we were playing these shows you know the, at that time in new york there were like two clubs that you really wanted to play at now there's a plethora of them by that time there's just really two and we would just bounce around and you know they would count how many you know the doorman would count how many people were coming to see you and be like who are you here to see and then it was really important that you had all your friends come down because if you didn't have enough people, you weren't going to get booked the next time. And then we're all ever, you know, we were really vying to to open up for, you know, when and and when you know us by the trail of dead came to town, we really wanted to open for them and Mogwai and countless bands. We would always try to get the opening slots, just trying to build a volume, but it was a really slow burn. Just no one, you know, was always counting on your friends to come. So that and then even the label that we're still signed to, Madra, rejected us three times before they finally signed us. So it's uh I don't regret that. I think the, all these things were like good things for us. It kind of allowed us to form my identity and and uh, get comfortable in the process. And um, for the moment that when the what you know we did put out finally we did put out our rec- our first record. I think we were already you know our process was, was I can't I can't say it was completely solidified because we just weren't expecting people to respond to Bright Lights as they did. But at the same time, something was secured that it just kind of, we just, you know, kept on, we didn't, we weren't too frazzled by the attention, you know, and I was always very wary that like this could happen if, you know, I didn't know how, if I would be able to write another piece of music is if uh, knowing that there was someone else out there waiting for it, or, you know, I was just, I wasn't sure about this. And, uh, but having those years, I think kind of allowed us to like, you know, formulate and get a little bit comfortable in this whole thing. But so, yeah, I think the struggle I, I identify with. Yeah, five years is a long time to kind of get on the ladder, so to speak, with an album release. I know you had a couple of EPs, but from your personal perspective, because you worked in the record industry, right? You'd been, a, you'd had a job at Domino, so you knew how things worked. You put the band together. I mean, did you feel like in that five-year period, do you ever feel like this is just not going to happen? Felt like giving up? I, I, it, it was never about like for me giving up, but the goals definitely shifted from all I wanted was to make a record. That's it. I never wanted anything more. That was us. Someone give us the opportunity to make a record, but I never thought about giving up. And then I also just want to keep the band together because it's just, you know, you're, you're four guys in, in New York, you know, no one has money, you know, rehearsal spaces cost money. It's, you know, you're, all the gigs you're doing, you're like, you know, spending money to get the car, to get the the gear, the gig, no one cares. So, you know, it's easy. It, there's, there's all these reasons to be like, well, maybe we should just all give up. And But, all, you know, for me, it's more, I think I came to the conclusion that I really love this band. I really believed in what we were doing. And if no one ever hears it, I just found it strangely, I found like a piece to that, like, oh, I'm getting something out of it. And, you know, it shouldn't be about other people getting it. I mean, it would be. I'd love for people to have a reaction to it, but that's just not happening right now so for me it was more about well i really believe in what we're doing and if if you know all that happens is that we make music that we enjoy and that we believe in and that's that then you know it's just that's okay i was really trying to find the peace in that because uh 
yeah, there wasn't much to go on beyond that. And, and I just, you know, and I really want to just keep this together. So I actually became, I did find the piece of that, you know, I just, which is strange, but I did, like, I just really wanted to enjoy it. And some, there was a purity to that as well, where, you know, just doing it for you and not for cause and effect. And, and, um, that's the only thing that I guess you, I could control at that moment. I can control how people are going to react and fans, you know, we weren't building a fan base by playing these shows or, you know, I don't know. So that's the only thing that like, yeah. That's, so I did get, I, I didn't, feel, I just wanted to keep together just for us to play music because I love what we're doing. Yeah. I, I think that's the, the crucial thing in, in that five years is you were building a core fan base. Probably a lot of those people are still with you today, I'm sure. Uh, and that's, the hard thing for bands these days, I mean, patience and hard work without seeing the rewards, you know, in the kind of instant gratification world we live in and where the pressure is to succeed. It's also like a different time. Like, I mean, for one, I wouldn't say we had, we were building up a fan base for five years. I feel like I really leaned on my, my friends for those first four years. And then like the last year, I feel like, you know, things were kind of changing a little bit in New York, obviously the, you know, the strokes were starting to get a lot more attention. People, there was a spotlight in the city. And so the last year before we recorded our, you know, the year, I guess probably like 2001 was, was, you know, things were heating up for sure in, in New York, but it took a long time um, until then. But also it was part of the old architecture of the music industry, where it was sort of like a word of mouth thing. It was a slow build. People hadn't really figured out how to use the internet. So it was kind of pre-social media, all these things. So in one way, it's like, you know, and, and to the extent that, you know, all these bands could exist in New York City, for instance, unbeknownst to each other, you know what I mean? Like, and not like, you know, because it was just like, there wasn't this network and so forth. So I think the way people discovered us and our music has more in common with the way people discovered music in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Do you know what I mean? And then after that, from, you know, 2002 onwards, it's just like, You've had downloads, you've had piracy, you've had streaming, you've had, you know, it's just <laughs> like, social media. Yeah, yeah. It's like, As you say, you know, it's been constant flux ever since. Yeah, 25 years on, out of that New York scene, even including the strokes in the conversation, and a lot of bands that went by the wayside, you know, Interpol's doing pretty well. I mean, you know, relatively, you got to a healthy place. I want to kind of get to to that in a bit, but let's just get on to Turn on the Bright Lights because. Having gone through the five-year struggle and relying on your friends and then feeling like something was was happening, I mean, you put together a phenomenal debut. I mean, I'm sure that 9.5 out of 10 score in Pitchfork was uh, was part of it, but you were critically received and then you did have a kind of a stratospheric, maybe not a stratospheric rise, but definitely a moment. How did you react to that personally after kind of five years just trying to make it happen i mean it's 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 a funny thing because when i think back to those five years i can think all the stages i could think of the slowness of the moments i could think of the you know putting all like stuffing all those demos putting them in envelopes writing to the record label going to the post office sending off following up with the record label you know all those things i remember very clearly and then finally putting out you know getting to make the record was sort of like was such a dream getting to make the record for matter was just insane to me where I was just like this is it was my favorite record label and I just couldn't believe it so it was almost like that was like the end of the movie for me like I never dreamt further than that so then going on tour and then doing this is just like wow I can't believe you know the end it's happening wow that's all that for that so everything that happened after is just the fact that people actually had a positive reaction to the album was just insane to me especially since no one really cared about the demos and the demos weren't terribly different than what's on the album just 
better executed, but ultimately we had our identity fucked since day one. You know, we didn't, you know, I mean, like the, the early, you, the early traces of Interpol were there since, uh, you know, our, since our first show. I guess the one thing I would say is like, it didn't happen like overnight. You know, I mean, I think there was a tension on us just because of all the, the tension that New York City was getting, but it felt like, you know, we were on that first uh, tour in a van around the States and you could see us getting a little, you know, the show's getting busier and busier as the tour went on. And then like, you know, and then like the next tour we did, we did it in a bus. But again, like the venues just went up like a stage and then went up. It felt like kind of still, you felt like the vapors of the old music industry were still strong in the sense that it was college radio. So started supporting us record and the record stores were putting us like on end caps and being like recommending, you know, I mean, it's still like a word of mouth, so to speak, kind of thing going on. By the end of it, yeah, we'd reached a certain like level and playing, you know, some big shows and it was pretty exciting. But I think the fact that it wasn't overnight, I think, you know, I'm really grateful that it wasn't one of the situations, you know, it was pre, you know, the way the, you know, the way social media was like, even five, seven years later, where all this anticipation before you even recorded a note, that would have been insane to me. I think that would have been, yeah, that would have been like really terrible. So I was really happy about like, A, I was happy about having, in hindsight, I was happy about having those five years leading up to making our first record. That was a good thing. That solidified our process. And then B, that when we put out Bright Lights, I think the fact that it was so word of mouth, it, it felt like a word of mouth kind of thing going on. It just felt like people were excited about us, but that felt, you know, I don't know, it just felt good and exciting. And then I think what we did that was was smarter and that we were very mindful of was, even though we, we toured pretty hard on the back of Bright Lights, whenever, after we finished like one run around the States and before going to Europe, we'd go back to our rehearsal space in Williamsburg and we start writing. And that was really just be like, let's start writing before there's too much attention. Let's just have some ideas and have some songs under our belts before. So we don't finish touring. And now there's everyone's like, wait, and you know, waiting for our next record and we have a blank slate. And that was something that we really, we were very cognizant about doing and just being really ready. And consequently, that's what led to, you know, we put out antics literally two years after bright lights and we toured really almost up till the, you know, the moment we started recording. So um, I think those are that, that sort of helped us just kind of bridge. We're very aware about like, yeah, the, the you know, yeah, what happens when people, you know, they anticipate. I think it's, I don't know if people talk about it so much now, but back then people talked about a lot, the, the sophomore slump kind of thing. And I think that was very much in our minds of like, let's, you know, let's build something towards the second record before we can even think, have time to think about that. Yeah, I had Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian on the show, actually. And Stuart was saying same thing because they, again, took a while to get going, made a first record, but he had a bunch of songs in the pocket already for the second record. That was, in a sense, the, the kind of trick to why their second record was so good and built the momentum, which was a similar story for Interpol. I mean, I mentioned, you know, Antics is one of my favorites anyway, because I listened to it so much at the time, but it is a really strong second album. And you did manage to avoid that sophomore slump. So in hindsight, you were doing all the right things. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe there was a deliberate, smart decision on that basis. Let's just go back and write. Let's not get carried away. I, I think so. I, I think it was like just a good move. And then you, I think even on the, even while we we're still touring on Turn on the Bright Lights, I think we started playing at least one, if not two songs that we would end up recording. You know, so I think so. I mean, I, you know, it's, I can't believe we even found the time to write in between tours, like, you know, on Bright Lights, just because we, we tour pretty heavy and, you know, going to Australia and Japan and doing like a lot of stuff. But I think we just, you know, somehow we were all on the same page about being like, this is important and we should try to do this and we should try to 
get ahead of this. And and I think it, it served as well because, yeah, I don't know. I just think coming back to blank state would have been a bit daunting. Maybe it would have been fine, but it certainly felt a lot better having a bit, you know, having some songs in an arsenal and then having a bit of a plan to go back and record with uh, in the same studio, the same person that recorded um, Turn on the Bright Lights. Yeah, because there's so many second albums that do okay because, you know, there's a bigger production around it or, you know, the, the band gets in a, a big producer or whatever. And it sounds, they sound good. I think on Antics, I genuinely feel like the, you know, the songs were really strong on the album, which is what builds momentum from there. And I guess in your case, it did ab- absolutely that because that was the point where you were signed then to a major right for the third album so you were suddenly on a major label and possibly global stars but that didn't quite work out so on reflection now how do you kind of go back to that time what happened well i mean nothing changed as far as the record we made we would have made the same record whether it's an independent or not our love to Meyer wouldn't change you know the decisions that we made you know, we had complete autonomy and we, you know, and we made the decisions based on what we wanted to do as a band. So nothing would have changed there artistically. I felt like we were just unafraid to try to do something a bit different, like work with like a different team and, and just try to to be open to it. And um, knowing that nothing was going to change on the artistic side and that we had complete control of everything we wanted to do. And I guess we just had a little bit of also bad luck in the sense, like some of the things that happened in major labels, uh, worlds happened like the, you know, where, you know, one label sort of merged with another label. And a lot of people that were enthusiastic about signing us were no longer at the record company. And so that kind of just changed the, the spectrum, you know, right as we were releasing our love to admire. But I, you know, as much as I did work in the music industry and, and so forth. I don't know. I also looked at it as like, just, and, and also, you know, coupled with the fact that, you know, by the time we actually even released Ant, before we released Antics, by the time, you know, two weeks after we recorded Antics, three months before we were due to release Antics, it leaked online, you know? And so people were already reviewing it, like a leaked version of yeah. the record online. We were doing like a tour beforehand. So to me, like, my brain, my, my mindset, like sincerely was easy come, easy go. You know, I felt very you know, grateful that I was able to, you know, put out bright lights kind of the, under the umbrella of the old way, you know, the word of mouth thing, college radio, people getting, you know, moving forward and so forth. So if no one was going to buy antics, obviously, you know, people did buy it and so forth, but I was like, easy come, easy go. And I think I felt the same way about our love to admire as far as like being on a major label and, you know, things kind of going one way or the other. But I was like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's you know, it's filing into the category of like, I can't control this. But I do, I do accept that I made decisions to sign to a major label and just to do something different. And I don't have regrets about that. You know, it was, it was like, a, it was an experience to have. And the most important thing to me is it didn't affect the record we made. I'm very proud of our love to admire. And I think there's like some great, great songs on the album and songs that we play, you know, to this day. Yeah, it's a good album. And actually, I, I didn't mind the kind of more commercial sound. I don't think that's, I mean, this is where I'll disagree with you. I don't think it's, I don't think, I mean, we just changed from working, maybe, you know, we worked with Rich Costi on that and we just gave the record to Capitol and then they put it out. There was no, it wouldn't, that was the same thing as what would have happened with Matt at all. We would have made the same record and the guy we worked with, Rich Costi, and he came recommended that she'd meet from uh, Lawrence from Domino and he had like, you know, so I was like, oh, cool. You know, we just, we were just open to trying to do something new to work with new people. And so but it wasn't because we had sort of designs on commercial success or doing 
Like, I mean, and if you listen to like Pioneer to the Falls, the first song on that record, it's it's pretty out there. It's a pretty different kind of architecture, but I think it shows a band trying to push forward to progress and to be open to like new directions and new sounds and so forth. Yeah, I, I think actually that's probably where it marks itself in different territory from the first two records. It it just felt like you were trying to branch out into something else. So maybe I'm just putting the maybe commercial stamp on it just for the perceptions of being associated with a major and all of that. So yeah, I, I definitely accept that. And then it's a very familiar story, by the way. Band goes to major label and it's not it's not anyone in particular or anything. It's just a series of events that, as you say, are out of your control. And that's that's the thing I think that is disorientating for bands in that situation. I guess and I guess for me, because I was well aware of yeah, the the history with bands, you know, these things happening. I'm like, right when I, you know, it was one label kind of gobbles up another label, this and that. You're like, oh yeah, okay, it's 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 that old chestnut, you know, like all right, all right well, you know, what can yeah, I do? it's it's corporate shenanigans. You know, you're a band making music and you caught up in it all. <laughs> yeah. And as I said, the only thing is I can accept is like, oh yeah, we did the side signed to Capitol Records. So chalked us up to experience and so forth. But it, it all worked out. You know, we signed again with Matador on album four and and now our love to admire is actually, you know, we've licensed it to Matador. So it's all groovy. Keith here. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. I just want to sort of take a diversion into your own guitar playing style, which I really like. It's very distinctive. How did you arrive at that sound? Like, who were your influences and how did you kind of channel those into the way you play? Well, thank you. Um... It's always a difficult one for me to answer. There's, I mean, for one part, like I, I still write the same way that I, I, I was writing as a teenager, which is like a classical guitar, um, like a really shabby, like classical guitar that's not necessarily good, but it's, it's comfortable to me. So I like to try to write songs this way. I don't write with like plugged in, amplified, all this and that. I write and, you know, I'm like watching films and just like plucking away and drinking coffee in the morning. So it's like the way I like to do things. If I can detect a little piece of music or a little bit of a trail of like, oh, this could be a great direction or there's something down here, then just in this sort of like bare setup as a classical guitar, me plucking away on it, then to me, I feel like, okay, well, that, you know, if I can sense something emotional and, and, and something to be discovered, then, then that says a lot. That, that to me makes me feel like as soon as I amplify and give it a bit of like character and so forth, I can sort of like chisel away and find, you know, something a bit more yearning there. From a guitar sound, I would say, I don't know, for me, it's like, I love like the Morricone, like spaghetti Western guitar sounds for me. Those things were always like the greatest. I love the hollow body, like sounds just, you know, from, you know, fifties and sixties. I love like, like rumble to me is, you know, by Link Ray is like one of the greatest guitar sounds and guitar moments ever. Um, that kind of vibe to me is like really it for me. Like I really love it. Or, you know, even like, um, the uh there was a band in the 90s called Jonathan Pieter, like when I was like uh a, you know a college student or like a teenager in, in uh in New York mid-90s they had all I don't know if you ever heard of them but they were like all the attention in, in the world they had who was the band Jonathan Fire Eater. Okay, okay, no, I don't know them. They very exciting band. And actually uh three of the guys went on to be um in the Walkman and so oh, including the guitars. Yeah. 
Right. Okay. Well, now that makes total sense. I mean, the Walkman. I I loved the Walkman. Oh, me too. Big Walkman. Distraught when they uh, when they called it a day. Yeah. Well, Paul, like Paul the guitarist, I feel like he's got great a great guitar sound, and he had a similar guitar sound in John Fryer too, and like that kind of you know '50s '60s timeless kind of vibe. I I love. I don't know. It's kind of it's different from the that sort of twangy sound as well. You know, when I was at the the Roundhouse show, something struck me that. I hadn't heard before in your playing and in the sound, it sounded like it was actually quite African, like mm. almost like the Mali, you know, the Ali Farkatori, that kind oh, of man. style, you know, just the looping riffs, kind of a little bit uh, trancy. I guess that's not a conscious thing, but that's what I heard live for sure. I mean, that's like me on my greatest, like, fantasy days of wishing I could do but yeah I love that <laughs> stuff man like no I mean I'm a huge admirer of, and and uh yeah now that's like that's it when and when you listen to some of those records you know they're just like epic guitar playing and and I would love to be able to imitate some of that you know but uh if you could hear any sort of detections I, w- I would definitely say that there's an influence in my guitar playing and you know I think part of it is the balance in the band as well which I I really admire so yes that's the way you play guitar but also with Paul Banks, you know, yes, he's the front man, but neither of you dominate. And with Dan Fogarino on the drums, there's a trio now. You seem very balanced. It's very even. On stage, on the record, how did that happen? Is that a deliberate decision? Or did that happen, you know, after Carlos left? How did that come about, that kind of balance? Probably after Carlos left somewhat, I would say, I mean, A, you know, the band has always been looked at as like, you know, a democracy. Everyone has an ownership. Everyone has a feeling of like, it's theirs. It's not, you know, it's never meant to be one person and other parts. It's always, you know, and I think this was very important since the inception, since, you know, way before we, we, you know, we were signed to a record label or anything like that. So I think that's just part of our DNA and it's important that people feel that way. And, and this is part of, I, I would say, is the reason why we're still bands to this day. I mean, I think this is something that we, I certainly was very conscientious of, like, you know, you, you know, you don't have to read much to kind of get into the whole, like, oh, and this is how bands broke up over time. Wow, they made one record, then boom. And so to me, I was like, let's not have these things. Like everyone, it's just not, it's silly and it's dumb and everyone should feel like, this is theirs and, and a sense of belonging and, and ownership. And so let's remove this, you know, and, and I think it's definitely part of what's made us still make records this day and everyone feeling like, you know, this is their baby. It's important. But then certainly, yeah, when it became just the three of us, yeah, the circle had to close a little bit where we had to feel the balance and there's only three of us and there were more writing music. And, but that said, when that happened, you know, a lot of things um, revealed themselves, you know, I mean, we, we, we knew that we owed it to ourselves to give this a whirl, but we also knew that we had to be honest to see whether there was something there, whether this was possible. We didn't take anything. We weren't just expecting to be like, to carry on. How could we, you know, Carlos is a, a huge part of the band and, a, you know, and a formidable artist musician. So we had to see. And, um, but that said, like when the early days of, you know, I started playing Paul, um, songs I've written, you know, in advance of El Pintor. And then, you know, at that time, we didn't even know if Paul was going to play bass. But, you know, first day he came for guitar and it's just like, hmm, we need something else here. And then he's like, huh, I have a, you know, bass. Maybe I'll play bass. I'm like, okay, let's try this. And then, you know, Sam wasn't even there. And then right away from like that second day, we, you know, made great headway into what would become my desire and anywhere from El Pintor. And it just felt like, wow, this is 
there's something here and it's not, you know, and it's just like, I didn't know Paul could play bass that well. And I knew he was a great artist and he's someone that just in general can pick up things very quickly, whether it's like something athletic or um, artistic. And right there, it's like, wow, this is, I wouldn't have predicted this. You know, I was thinking we'd probably get someone else. And then like, you know, it's just some sort of form of that way. And it just, uh, you know, when that happened and Sam came up maybe like two weeks later, and then from there we were kind of off to the races and things were just, wow, this is maybe, yeah, something just, uh, you know, we were put into the situation and, and, um, but we were finding out a lot about each other and about the band dynamic and, and, uh, how we could continue. Yeah. I always think it's fascinating just the way there's a reaction to, you know, when a founding member leaves and as definitely as the key part of the sound, the way Carlos played bass and for, you know, Paul Banks to take up the bass. It's the sort of thing that almost worries fans a little bit. It's like, ah, this is gonna, this is now gonna be off kilter. You know, we're we're not gonna hear two guitars chiming. But actually, I think uh, you definitely, as a player, seem to react really well on El Pintor. I think that's a good moment for you as as a guitar player. I'm thinking of, I mean, you mentioned My Desire, you know, get that kind of climbing riff. And then there's the the riff on anywhere. You know, you you felt like uh, you were having a bit bit of a moment on that record. Yeah, you know, I I feel like it was an emotional time in our band's life, and uh, I don't know, it just and maybe even in my life or something like that, and or emotional and not necessarily like in a bad way either, just like in an expressive, like deeply expressive way. And and I still love like the riff to my desires, like it still hits me hard in a way that's like it taps into something and. Uh, and then also just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who like you double down, like, okay, push in the corner, I'll double down hard. It's like, I didn't know, but because maybe there was like a lot of uncertainty and it was a very raw moment. This is kind of why I probably picked up the guitar in the first place, even as a teenager, you know, like unhappy <laughs> teenage years and so forth. It makes you, this is like your outlet. And so I had a lot to probably express. Okay. I get, I get that. Cause I was wondering, you know, whether that was a sense of, everybody stepping up a little bit, which I've heard before. I mean, you know, when, when a key member of a band leaves, and uh, there is a sense that the other musicians are going to rally around and, and they're going to, you know, step up to the plate, do something different, but also just be better. Yeah. And also it's like, it's always, you know, it's like every time you get to make a, and write a record, I think it's like an opportunity to do something better than you've done previously. It's like, I mean, like it's, it doesn't really, really matter what you did previously. It's not like I'm sitting there so much thinking about what last happened. I just don't, you know, like I've started writing some new songs now and it's not because I'm really thinking about the other side of make believe it's because I kind of, I'm, I still love writing songs. And then when you're writing songs, you're like, you're just kind of like, Oh, this thing, you know, you start just chiseling away and it sort of becomes this little, projects in your brain and it takes up a good portion of it. It just, it's kind of bizarrely healthy for me, you know, it feels like good. And I get very excited about that. And, um, and not to keep saying the same thing, but I'm very appreciative that I still have this excitement, but it's because it's something that I relate to since I was like a teenager and that's how I relate to it. But I think also maybe quite often though, like, I think like on El Pintor too, in general, like the fourth record was, and I do really love that record too, but it's a very different kind of record. And I think it felt kind of exciting to write a very different record from that record. You know, something maybe with a little bit more guitar riffs. And I think maybe I was just ready for that and just kind of make it like a bit, you know, like bet on us, bet on like us play, as playing in a room. And I think that record sounds like us playing together. It really does. It has a, a strong liveliness to it. And it's a, re, you know, we produced that record. We, you know, we put everything we had into it. And it's like kind of like a betting on us sort of moment, you know, where, you know, didn't know what was going to happen, but 
you know, I would bet on Sam and Paul any day in a room as, as artists and, and as, like, as I was mentioning before, like evolve, you know, continuously evolving artists. And I think that record kind of showcases that, you know? Yeah, I, I do too. I think it's a really, really great record, that one. Thank you. The Art of Longevity is a team effort. The show is produced by the Song Sommelier, that's me, with Project Melody. It's audio engineered and edited by Audio Culture. Our amazing cover art is by the wonderful Mick Clark. And original music for the show is by Andrew James Johnson. So when you went back to Matador after the adventure with, you know, being signed to a major and all of that, the other thing that, and I could be completely wrong here because I'm just looking particularly at album covers for, for one thing, because you have a particular styling. So our love to admire was, you know, it was lions taking down a deer and, you know, there was no black, no red, no white, no gray. Uh, and then that that's come back. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit, bit about that because actually it is important, I think, for longevity. There is a brand there that is Interpol. It may not be manufactured as such, but there's some styling going on. What What do you think, first of all, about the role that plays and how did those aesthetics come along? Because you also, you know, you turn up in, in pretty smart suits and people don't bother with that these days. There's a distinctive look and brand to Interpol. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, it's it's pretty individual as far as like suits and things like that and clothes and all this and that. I mean, I wear like a suit every day. Um, it's pre- pretty hot out here, but I do still wear a suit jacket when I go outside. That's just, to me, that's just my comfort. This is my thing. So that's just, and that's something maybe in the early days, like we just had in common. And I think, you know, we, we definitely, we, we individually liked our own, you know, sense of style and so forth. But then we also liked having this cohesive thing or kind of like something that made us a band, like a little gang. Aesthetically, as far as the record seeds and so forth. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like the other side of make believe. I really love the, the artwork on that. I think it's like great. And, and the color scheme to me, it's like a timeless thing. Like I'll never tire of that. And I do think it's like a, it's a, I don't want to say brand recognition aspect, but it does feel like, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like you say, you, you don't want to say it, but essentially there's, there is nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, if you look at the Rolling Stones logo, uh, I mean, they, they're proud of that now, how that, and it's pretty iconic how it all came about. So I, I think it's a, it's a cool thing. And I think it's an important thing for bands to have a font, a distinctive, consistent look and feel. And especially these days, because there's so much fucking music. That's the thing. Mm. You know, if I was sort of uh, flicking through a in a record store just based on the cover, like you sometimes do with books, I'd kind of pick out an Interpol record. <laughs> and it delivers what <laughs> what there is on the cover so- somehow. The music inside, is it's reflected there. I mean, I feel like the way you... Just, I mean, that's interesting that you, what you just said that you reminds me of being a kid and like you, you know, picking up record when you are, when you did go to a record store and then you would put, you know, pick up a piece of vinyl or a CD or whatever. And then you got a sense about what this was about. You pull, you pull something out that you didn't know the band name, you didn't know anything about it, but just something about the sleeve and the design and maybe the name or whatnot gave you a sense of what it was about. And quite often you were... You were on point. You were close enough. You know, maybe maybe you didn't love it, or maybe, but you know what I mean. You had an idea about that, and there's something that I would imagine these. I mean, I don't know. I can't say actually. I mean, it's maybe there are things that actually just hit that mark where you know right away what this is about for sure. But I don't know if it's the same thing. Part of what I think what I was even talking about is actually maybe the physical aspect of it too. Where nowadays, obviously, we're flooded with like streaming stuff, and every day there's like 
you know, so much so. So how do you stick out? But I, I, I agree. I mean, I mean, it's also, it's not like we, you know, you're talking about um, Arlo Thurmeyer when there's like dioramas and so forth. And then even on album four, it's pretty different. It's like 3D Interpol being like shattered all about. But at the end of the day, I think we're probably known for like, yeah, the red, white, black um, aesthetic. And then I do, you know, but then again, like on Marauder, we had like, you know, sort of like a Gary Winogrand, like photograph, who's like one of my favorite photogra- photographers. And, and I just can't believe we got to license one of his and in a political sort of moment on the cover itself. And so that was kind of a cool thing to do, too. I, d- I don't think we have like parameters of how we exist, but I felt pretty good, as I was mentioning, with what we ended up on for the other side of Make Believe does feel like a very Interpol sort of cover but i love those man i love the image i mean to me if i was in a museum and i saw that image of the mirror and the knife and staring at it, i probably would stop and you know consider it for a second yeah i mean i like it too and i think it's coming back which is a good thing i think it's coming back because of the vinyl resurgence mostly but also i think it's just important in that you know standing out and representing the art you know it's back to those days of hypnosis uh, before it was a company that bought up music rights it was a design agency that did all those kind of 70s classic pink floyd covers and ufo and you know all those bands and they would literally uh, be paid you know tens of thousands like a design agency in a brief and they'd spend weeks and weeks and they'd you know but it sort of it's built to last because of that which is cool i think I, I agree. I agree. And, and, and uh, maybe even more so, as I said, like I haven't like really examined, I don't spend that much time examining what is out there and how many thousands of releases there are per day and what the covers look like and so Too forth. Many. But I would imagine, have, yes, yeah, so yeah, it's not my hobby, but I would imagine having a little bit of a strong identity and something that kind of like speaks to the aesthetic of the band, you know, that's recognizable, you know, aesthetically is, is an important thing to have in this, in this day and age in this, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. All right, uh, Daniel, we don't have too much time left. I'm aware of that. So it's really just about wrapping up and finding what's next, really. I guess, you know, 2022 is an interesting year for you. It's 20th anniversary of your debut album. But a, a few years ago, you toured that whole album. So you kind of have done that. And 25 years as a as a band. So how are you celebrating if you're celebrating? I mean, I feel like the celebration is the fact that, you know, you, you make a new record and that you feel very enthusiastic about that. You feel pretty, you know, very strong about that. You're very excited about that people certain, yeah, you know, have a visceral reaction to it. So to me, that's like, that's a celebration that you get to still do this and that you still feel very incentivized by what you're doing. Right. Like that's just crazy to, you know, to be here and be talking to you, to be doing this, be out going on, on a tour with Spoon. It's amazing. Like who, you know, if you told me this 20 years ago, I'd been like, no way. <laughs> so that's uh, that really is a celebration. Huh? It, it's, it was really interesting to hear you say that Turn On The Bright Lights was kind of an ending for you. You know, it's like almost closure was right there. So it it's kind of nice to, to think about that being, I don't know, you didn't expect it to be the beginning of a 20-year journey. But you're in a place that I know from the conversations I have with bands that are starting out now, and there are God knows how many of them, you're in a place they want to be. You know, you're, you're not reliant on anything. You're not, you're not even reliant on a hit because you don't need hits. How do you reflect on the band's success? I mean, to me, it's just, it's a little bit unreal. It's very dreamlike. I, I don't want to keep saying the word like it's, a, it's, 
it's a really humbling kind of an and a place to be in and some and a, and a, a very privileged one like and it's not lost on me and i do feel very grateful for the you know like i was saying before those first five years in hindsight where they put this foundation and i do sympathize for those bands that are breaking out now like it'd be really hard or if you start getting too much attention or if you do start getting too much attention too soon in this this era, I feel like that's like, that could be like a death hold a little bit because, you know, people, you know, it's like, oh my God, you don't, you haven't been given that time to sort of formulate to get to know each other, maybe as a band, maybe you just met months ago and now everyone's like trying to sign you. And I don't know, it just feels like a little strange. And I think it's, it's, um, you need that time. So to the, yeah, to me, it's like, it's crazy. We get to still do this and, and to still have this feeling of like, this is really important to me. This is a big part of my life. And, and, Maybe even more so now than ever, in the sense that when you are playing shows and you do look out there, it's like it's an amazing thing to go up and why does you know to play songs that resonate with people and you see it on their faces globally, you know, and culturally, it's just really it's such a it transcends cultures and languages and so forth. And I think maybe even I was like maybe like when you're like in your twenties, whatever you're doing this, you maybe you're thinking about those things, but you're not thinking about these turn like in this sort of like you know what you know the sort of very barren sort of moment like wow this is what a what what is it about music that even resonates with humans why do we have this sort of reaction it's a crazy thing so to be up here doing this and i will say though as much as we have you know our fans are like the best fans ever you know they're they're very you know they're so loyal and they're they're just really so supportive i do think you know the one thing i have been noticing since we started playing shows this year there's a lot of young fans out there there's a lot of people coming on shows and it's really incredible to see because we don't put our records that frequently you know every like average every four years so you'll see fans in the audience uh close up that are mouthing every single word to you know not just like the evils and slow hands but like songs like deep album yeah. cuts and they're yeah, like yeah. really owning it and it's something that like it makes me think of my teenage years when i felt that way when i was you know like you know like they're like people they're like the some of these i would say they're like 18 year olds and it makes me think okay four years ago they were like 14 they probably didn't know we were 14 you know, you know, when they were 14. So in that time, they might've had like this musical journey and they had that discovery. And then maybe they went down to that rabbit hole where you start like discovering bands and then you start owning those bands. And that's what it looks like to me in the audience. So it's a really amazing thing to see this in several countries now that resonating with young fans. So that's, and I know that's a rarity in the same age because it's just like the music genres have really shifted and so forth. Yeah. I mean, a, a rarity in some ways, but I think probably it's happening more easily in others because of streaming. Like, mm. you know, the 90s are having a moment for sure. I mean, if you look at kids in Nirvana t-shirts and, and the amount of sure. kids listening to Nirvana, and actually the period that where you came through in the early 2000s is having a moment as well because it's starting to appeal to that generation. They realize that's what comes next. And so when you go to Primavera Sound and you're you're playing on the same bill as the strokes and all these bands that are, I mean, it's kids in the audience and it's, it, that must be really great, but it is, I think it's part of the streaming culture, which I think that's one of the many benefits of streaming whilst there's, you know, many evils that we know of, but that, that's for sure. It's just the way you reach new audiences. And, and for me, even when, when antics leaked two weeks after we finished recording it, there was a part of me that at, you know, one part was like, well, yeah, it's unfortunate. Another part, I was like, well, in some ways that she's pretty amazing that some kid who maybe lives like in a remote part of the world or 
has taste for for the you know certain types of music and so forth, but isn't punished by the ge- you know geographical location. And there isn't like a cool record store that they can now, if they have the desire to find the music, they can find it. And it's like, oh, so one part music has potential to be a you know at an all time popularity because if you live in a remote part of the world that you don't you know you can you have access to it. And there's something very exciting about that. And I still hold fast to that idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I didn't want to get too metaphorical about it. But on the closer of the new album, there's a track which I really like called Go Easy, which um, has a positive note to it, but but it is kind of what we're talking about. I mean, Paul Banks is singing, I'll keep pushing forward, all the obstacles in my way have been falling, which is part of it as well. I was thinking, well, is that a hark back to obstacles one and two, or am I reading too much into that? You might be reading too much into that, but I do think it's a positive, like, I mean, I feel like there was like when we were writing it before even Paul started writing the verses, it was just, you know, it was, um, it was kind of like he was saying go easy over and over again. And it was sort of, I think that was like maybe the first song that we started working on of the new batch. And, uh, it was kind of, it felt like a mantra and it felt like definitely like a mantra for the last few years. And, uh, yeah, something that we all probably can relate to and accept. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Something of a kind of a tonic in a way. Okay. Well, look, I mean, Daniel, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Whatever you do next, I'll I'll look forward to it. But I particularly will look forward to Interpol and Spoon because I thought it had happened already. Yeah, man. Book your ticket. Come out. I got to get myself over to the US. Do it. Let us know. Okay, man. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for the questions. Thanks, Daniel. Take care now. Bye-bye.